The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Thursday morning, the 7th of September. Good morning. With much debate and discussion from now till 11am, this is Michael Reed on LMFM. When I have it, I spend it. Charlie McCreevy told us proudly at the height of uh, the Celtic Tiger, the finance minister became known as Champagne Charlie. But as you very well know, Ireland went from boom to bust. Don't make the same mistakes again. That's the advice from the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council, which want the government to stick to its own spending rules in next month's budget. That would mean not increasing government spending by more than 5% next year. Let's speak to our political correspondent, Sean Defoe. Good morning, Sean. Thanks for joining us on the programme this morning. The government met for the first time before the new political term yesterday. and We got some sense, did we not, of government's thinking on this spending rule and what's going to happen. And let's not forget that the government has billions at its disposal, billions it didn't expect to have. Will they spend it or will they take that prudent IFAC advice, do you think? Well, when is a rule not a rule? Like, this is a rule that was introduced two years ago that the government said we're not going to increase budget spending by beyond 5% overall uh, each year, 2% to sort of keep uh, pace with inflation and then 3% in order to have new spending. Uh, And basically... They have never stuck to it. They didn't stick to it in last year's budget. They're not going to stick to it in this year's budget. It's going to be north of 6% uh, when you take everything into account. But the argument from ministers yesterday, from Michael McGrath, Pascal Donoghue, and indeed Patishik, Leo Varadkar, was, look, the last two years have been extraordinary budgets. This was based on a normal year, on a 2% inflation year. Obviously, we haven't had that. It was nearly 10% last year. It's still running around 5 or 6% uh, this year. And so just to help people out and keep people sort of kicking and keep people keeping up themselves with the rate of inflation, that they had to breach that rule. And they were also uh, preaching their own prudence by talking about all the money that they're saving this year, that, that when you look at, at a surplus of, of potentially 10 billion or 10.5 billion this year, and um, there is at least that uh, and indeed more going into the, the different saving accounts, the sort of rainy day fund 2.0 and this new investment account mm. that, uh, that Michael McGrath wants to set up for the future. So they were saying, look, they think it will be a balanced budget and it will be a prudent budget. Um, IFAC seems to not get get a, get a bit of short shrift from the government. They all say how important it is in the course of one of the Fine Gael governments that set it up. Um, but when it comes to the different advice, and indeed the advice this time, I don't think they're going to be sticking to it. Alright, it's a dream position for any government to be in, to have all of this money that it never anticipated, and a great opportunity to win votes. Uh, what kind of mood were the government in, uh, coming back together, uh, as uh, they did yesterday, ahead of uh, the budget? Uh, do you think... Uh, elections are on their minds because there is that opportunity to win those votes in the budget. Uh, well, I did ask Leo Varadka this as he was going in, you know, is this all about now election focus? He was talking about delivery, talking about how important it is for them all to share their priorities now for the next few months. Uh, and I sort of read into that, your priority is to deliver, 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 so that we can hold that up when the election comes around. Now, he said very emphatically, it's not about boundary commissions, it's not about elections. Uh, yesterday, some of the other ministers a little bit less circumspect. Uh, Simon Harris, for example, welcoming us to the new Wicklow-Wexford constituency, which is where the Avondale House was and where Cabinet met. And then uh, Eamon Ryan also asked about elections with the Green Party being on just 2% in the last poll and saying he thinks if they do deliver, people will eventually uh, vote for them in uh, some of the many elections that could take place next year. So there was a bit of a giddy mood, a bit of a first day back to school sort of vibe. The sun 
certainly helps that. It was a bit like having class outdoors for them. Mm. Beautiful, uh, few of the minutes beautiful went setting up. too. Wow. Uh, oh, I mean, yeah. Avondale is absolutely beautiful yeah. and mm. has, as we were informed, the, the uh, longest uh, tube slide in Ireland, which goes up above the treetops and you slide the way down. And I have it on very good authority that several ministers uh, decided <laughs> to do that afterwards during the press conference no, when none of the press could capture them. Right, no photographs taken by the looks of the papers today, unfortunately, because uh, that uh, would have been good to see, no doubt. Uh, I'm sure it was a, a thrill for one a, and all. Um, what else were the government uh, talking a- about yesterday? Because uh, there's a, a very busy uh, period ahead, no doubt. Yeah, well, look, the one that dominated actually the talk was the one that wasn't on the Cabinet agenda yesterday, and that was these, very, these new changes to speed limits that are coming in after the carnage we've seen on the roads in the last year. Uh, Minister Jack Chambers sort of announcing the changes, and it's going to mean basically a 20-kilometre reduction on a, a lot of roads in around residential from 50 to 30. You've got your you know, primary, secondary roads going from 100 to 280, and then others dropping down from 80 to 60 on, on rural roads. So that dominated a lot of the talk. On the actual agenda... RTE was probably the, the biggest item. There was the report into the broadcast brought by Catherine Martin that said they estimate that €21 million Euro in licensee revenue is going to be lost this year uh, on top of a almost €3 million Euro hole in the budget from last year, largely caused by a toy show, the musical. So there was a lot of talk of, of the bailout the broadcaster is going to receive. We found out that RTE had been seeking €34.5 million Euro from the government, and that was before all of this. So, you know, do the maths and you're talking 50 million plus, certainly, uh, that they may need in a bailout in the budget, although ministers are very keen not to get into figures saying that hasn't been negotiated, they haven't accepted that 34.5 million figure. And all of that still has to be talked out, that there will certainly be strings attached if they are going to give them a bailout. When they give them a bailout, they're not going to allow RTE to fail. It's, It's a when, I think, rather than an if and just how much. And then also, I think one that might worry people who are listening. Stephen Donnelly had an interesting memo talking about the next pandemic as if we haven't gotten over the old uh, pandemic quite yet, but he is setting up a unit in the Department of Health that will sort of be separate from the CMO, separate from the day-to-day running that will be charged with looking at future pandemics and outbreaks across the world and what's happening there and making sure that Ireland is prepared. And and rather worryingly, he said, while everyone describes COVID-19 as a once in a hundred years event, they don't believe that it, mm. the next one will be once in 100 years, if you like, that it could be 30, 40, 50 years, however, down oh, the line. All so, right, yeah. yeah <clears throat> I think I'd rather go down that slide than talk about that or yeah. think about that, to be honest. Uh, tell us about uh, the referendum very quickly, if you can, Sean. We were to have a, a referendum in November November on uh, the uh, women's place in the home, uh, 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 that in the Constitution, but that's not going to happen in November. Instead, we're going to have two referendums, it, it seems, at some time in the new year? Well, yeah, so I asked this question Leo Varadkar because we were meant to get the wording of this in June and we didn't and it hasn't gone yet to Cabinet. So he said there has been a draft wording, it hasn't been agreed by Cabinet and basically it's going to require two referendums about the same issue, about sort of gender issues and about changing the constitution, removing the women's place in the home, but also just t- tweaking the references that are in there. So two uh, referenda, he's hoping the wording can be agreed by the end of September, but this was meant to happen in November. The current date for it is the end of November for the two votes. The Electoral Commission has said they want three or four months to actually prepare the ground for a referendum like this. And he's going to meet with Arthur Leary, the CEO of the Electoral Commission, uh, sometime in the next coming week. So I think yesterday the teaching very much laying the groundwork that while at the moment they still think they might be able to get it done at the end of November, it, there's a good chance this is going to be pushed into the new year. And I, I asked him straight up that. I said, look, is, is the likelihood we're having it this year? And he sort of fudged it, said, look, November's the date for now until it's not the date. All right. Will we be voting to define what is a family? 
Well, see, this is what we don't know yet. We don't have the wording. So the the way it is probably going to, to be is that it will change that the, the woman's place is in the home to, you know, maybe mm. a person's place or, or whatever it is. Because they're very who, who is caring for another to, person. That, who is caring yeah, for another yeah, person. Yeah, they're mm, they're mm. key to have that in the Constitution to say that if, you, you know, because otherwise you're saying, oh, if you're stay-at-home, you, you don't really have that sort of value. Mm. Uh, and people should, have, should be valued for the caring work they do because it saves the state an awful lot of money and also it's a very difficult thing that they take on a lot of the time. Uh, but also there are other sort of you know tweaks and changes to it in the in the the wording, the way they want to have it, and basically updating what what the Peter straight up said with some sexist language in the constitution. So we don't exactly know what way they're going to side, and there has been disagreement in government over the wording of it. And um, that's what we await to see, and that's why they think there might be a longer horizon, a longer lead in. Because remember, referenda can be complex, particularly when you're getting into nuances, changing small things. And the history of referenda would suggest that when people don't fully understand it, they tend to vote no. So that the mm. worst thing the government wants is for these two to happen in November too early, and then you get a no vote and the issue is uh, is kicked away. All right, I think if we're going to define what a family is, it's going to be a horrible referendum uh, with a lot of transphobic contributions apart from anything else. Sean, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. That's our political correspondent, Sean Defoe. Now, if you'd like to comment on any of these issues or something else you've been hearing this morning, or if there's an issue that you'd like to raise with us, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 041-983-2000. Text or WhatsApp 0861800658. And you can do what Ferguson Ratoth has done. That's to email michael at lmfm.ie. Many thanks for your email, Fergus. Fergus says, Michael, instead of reducing maximum speed limits as we are proposing, we should follow the example of many countries around the world who have minimum speed limits on certain roads to ensure safe and efficient traffic flow. In the United States, for example, minimum speed limits are commonly enforced on interstate highways and certain other roadways. These limits are established to assure that inexperienced drivers or old fuddy-duddies who seem to be afraid of their own shadow do not impede the normal flow of traffic. Minimum speed limits are typically posted uh, along with maximum speed limits. Irish roads are a transport network clogged up by grannies and grandads crawling along at 60 kilometres an hour and 80 kilometre an hour zones, causing great frustration and quite often dangerous overtaking. The joke of it all is that the same old fogies get into the town and then they continue to drive at 60 kilometres an hour. They don't slow down, they don't speed up, they drive at 60 kilometres an hour, even when they're in the town, breaking the 50 kilometre an hour speed limit. Have these people ever done a driving test? Do they know about their responsibility on the road to ensure that there is a free flow of traffic? Do they even know the problems that they cause? Because I can guarantee you, they never, ever look in their mirrors. Strong thoughts, Fergus. Thank you indeed uh, for your email, michael at lmfm.ie. Another email actually on the same subject. uh, This came to us uh, from Deirdre in RD and she says the proposed reduction of default speed limits on national secondary roads and local roads is going to have little or no effect. There's many sections of roads where if you're driving at 80k, you'd be mad. And then there's other roads where 60 
would be incredibly dangerous. Local authorities should review these limits on a section-by-section basis and make sure that the speed limits suit the roads and that it's safe. In many cases, it would be well below uh, the uh, limits that are in place at the moment and local authorities do have these powers to do this. Surely they have the knowledge locally in their area to decide and define what the speed limit is and they should do it as a priority. Thank you indeed, Deirdre, for your email as well. As I say, your email address is michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Schools are short of hundreds of teachers as we speak. Last year, the Teachers Union of Ireland highlighted a shortage of teachers in maths, Irish, home economics, chemistry, French, construction, woodwork, English, biology, agricultural, science, engineering, metalwork, and in that order. Let's speak to Michael Gillespie, who's the General Secretary of the TUI. Good morning to you, Michael, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. Uh, I take it that the shortage is even worse this year. Uh, They appear to have uh, done somewhat well in recruiting over the course of uh, the last few weeks because I think there was 1,200 shortages at both post-primary and primary levels. That seems to have reduced to about 600 now, but it is an incredible situation to be in that schools have started, classrooms are full of children and short of teachers, 600 teachers across the board. Yeah, I mean, it's affecting every school in the country, both post-primary and primary, to a greater or lesser extent. Um, And that's before we start dealing with, um, you know, the normal things of, you know, people are going to get sick, we're going to have maternity leads, COVID is on the rise again. So the substitutes, we we will have nobody to do substitutes. So there will be classes that there'll be no teacher in front of or or at best maybe out of field or unqualified teachers. Right, That's uh, very worrying, I'm sure, for students and parents. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we do now we do have a very well qualified group of teachers who are abroad and we need to try and bring them home. Mm. And they're not going to come home to jobs for a few hours or for part time jobs. Why would they give up a permanent job abroad to get, you know, hours at home or we'll say a fixed term contract? We need to be offering these permanent whole time jobs and give them incremental credit for the work, they've, the experience they've had abroad, so they're coming home and they can face the cost of living crisis that we have here. So there, that all this is discouraging mm. them from coming home. Yeah, but are there uh, full-time jobs available or, or not? I, I thought the figure of 600 were vacancies that are advertised uh, on educationpost.ie. Well, if you look at, we'll say, pick a day cut three weeks ago when we did a bit of research, there was 400 jobs advertised at post-primary, and only two of them were permanent jobs. All the rest were either fixed-term jobs or hours. Um, You know, we've got to reimagine how we're offering teaching jobs. How can we compete with other jurisdictions who are offering permanent jobs? We're going to have Australia here now in October offering permanent jobs for next September with lovely lifestyle choices. Uh, You know, next Easter we'll have Dubai in hotels in Dublin offering permanent jobs tax-free with accommodation. Mm. And we're hoping to compete by offering fixed-term jobs, not permanent jobs on the whole time. You know, we really, really need to start uh, reimagining how we're offering jobs to teachers. We hope to keep them and, worse again, try and bring people home. I'm completely lost. I'm sure our listeners are completely lost. How can you have 400 jobs advertised uh, and that need for so many teachers uh, and only have two full-time posts? Can you explain it to us? 
Well, basically, uh, going back to austerity levels, whereby we, we became very tight on how we recruited teachers, we moved into a situation. Initially, you used to have to wait four years for, for a permanent job. Now you have to wait two years. So your initial job is a fixed-term job. But also the allocations to schools are very, very tight. So most schools, when they get vacancies, are in post-primary because we're not, we're not replacing uh, like for like sometimes with teachers. So we might only end up with a timetable that requires, you know, a couple of hours of maths, a couple of hours of something, depending on maybe the teacher that's left. We might be able to match the qualifications with the new teacher coming in. So you end up with these split jobs or parts of jobs. We need flexibility in schools, in other schools, to be not so inflexible, the department not to be so inflexible that schools can't have a small amount of an allocation, extra allocation, so they can make up a full job. You're not going to get people to take uh, bits of jobs. There's no hope of that going forward. And trying to look at this, that you will, and see what, we've, the, the, what we're experiencing at the moment is kind of a sign of madness to a certain extent. If you look at it now, even with, say, for with, say, woodwork or uh, metalwork mm. teachers who, who were extraordinarily scarce last year, like we, I was talking to past pupils of mine, you know, would they go back into, into teaching? And exactly they were saying to me, why would I take a pay cut to go back to a fixed-term job? Mm. You know, I, I might go back to a permanent job, but I won't go back to a fixed-term job. Well, even if there was a permanent job, can we compete with that amazing lifestyle uh, and uh, better paying conditions in Australia or wherever else is being offered? Well, obviously, we, we, we can compete in that mostly what happens is these people will do a couple of years and will want to come home. You know, they make lifestyle choices, but they won't come home unless, it, unless they're getting permanent jobs and maybe permanent jobs where they want to go. We've got, if we're competing for these people, we have to at least try and compete on somewhat of a level playing field. Mm. And what about housing? Well, obviously, housing is, 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 is an issue. But if you take someone coming back from Dubai who mm. may have a deposit of a house, yeah. right? And mm. this, is, this is a true story. They do have a deposit of a house, and then they get a fixed-term job. First thing they're told is they can't get a mortgage for two years because until they get the permanent until they're made permanent. So these people have deposits, may even have a house identified they can buy, but can't get a mortgage because, guess what? They don't have a permanent job. Mm. Because a lot of people go away to teach uh, in order to save for a deposit, don't they? That's a, there's a huge amount of that going on. Mm. But again, when they come back, they feel lost because of the wait. You know, they won't get the mortgage, even though they may have a very substantial deposit, because they wait for two years to get that CID or that permanent job. Mm. Um, could uh, the lenders look on that different? Is that something uh, that could be put in place? I'm not an expert in that mm. area now. I mean, I don't know the, the, the you know how strict. I know the central bank rules are extremely strict for mm. for lending money and, and and proportions of it. But I, I mean, I wouldn't be able to comment on that. Mm. But I mean, mm. obviously, if if it says if the if the lending institution say you must have a permanent job, yeah. or um, you know to get the, the you know the rest of your mortgage, no matter what your then that that's the rules. Yeah. Uh, if someone else can change those rules, fair enough. But it's, it's not a, it's not my expertise. My yeah, area no, and, I, and I'm sure, like me, you remember the crash in 2008, uh, and uh, you'd hope uh, that the central bank rules uh, would uh, remain in place and be adhered to. But it does seem 
uh, ridiculous to some extent, given the amount of vacancies that there are in the country, whether people take up those jobs in two years or, or not is another day's work. But it's uh, most probable that those jobs or full-time work will be available to people. I suppose the argument you're making is, well, don't wait the two years, make the full-time jobs available to them now. Exactly. And that's the way to bring people home and that's the way to keep people. Like, we also have a problem. Yeah, we can put in all these things for, um, you know, recruiting teachers, but we also have a problem in retaining teachers now as well. Um, You know, and retaining means that we have to deal with the fact that the teaching, the workload in Ireland has become huge. This is a hangover from austerity. So we need to look at the workload issue, which is another reason why people leave. Uh, We also have the issue in terms of there's no promotional opportunities. In other words, teaching is very flatline. You know, before the austerity, you you could get the job of being, you know, an assistant principal or two assistant, you know, assistant principal one or assistant principal two. Now the only promotional opportunities are to be a a principal or a deputy principal. So we need to restore that, that middle management structures because A, it'll help with the workload issue and B, it'll give opportunities to, and if, if someone gets a promotional post, they'll stay in Ireland. They, they might be less likely to go abroad. Yeah. Um, what is the constitutional position on uh, unqualified teachers uh, being in front of children in classrooms, whatever about at primary level? I, I mean, it, it's very hard to fathom how uh, somebody uh, could teach a, a subject to young children that uh, will mean eventually they'll be tested on their learning, something that uh, may define the rest of their lives, if that person who is in front of them is not qualified to teach the subject. But that, that's what we have at the moment. If you, if you can get, if you can't get a qualified teacher, uh, what you end up with is you get an, an, an out-of-field teacher. Now, they may have the subject in first year in college, or they may have done it in their leaving cert themselves, but that's what's, what you have to do. If there's a scarcity, um, that's what's going in. So we have a huge percentage of, teach, of, of classes at the moment this year being taught by out-of-field teachers. Okay. Well, it's a very worrying situation. Uh, you'll be making your case, obviously, uh, to government, uh, and I think to, uh, to parents and students around the country will be very worried uh, until this problem is resolved. Michael, thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme today. Michael Gillespie is uh, the General Secretary of the TUI, that's uh, the Teachers' Union of Ireland. Uh, a lot of people in touch with us already today. Let me bring you some of uh, those comments, and thanks to everybody who has taken the time to send us a, a text as uh, the case may be. John Conlon and Bally McKenney says he was travelling to Dunleer yesterday evening coming from the Valley Inn. It was about 200 yards away from the turnoff for Cullen with a car oncoming. When I was overtaken by a car which turned over the Cullen Road and it wasn't a young person driving with arseholes like that driving it's no wonder we have so many accidents god i hate that john when somebody else puts your life at risk like that and you feel completely out of control thank you indeed uh, for your text Uh, somebody else says michael fergus who emailed us earlier uh, is obviously in the same category driver as the idiot that overtook me on a double white continuous line on a bend I caught him two minutes later in Slane, so the driving tests need to be given to the impatient drivers out there. Thanks for that too. Somebody else, this is Olive, who says, Hi, Michael, that man that is complaining about elderly drivers, does he not realise that he too will be an old fogey someday? 
but I'm sure he'll be fine with his impeccable driving skills. Thank you, Olive, uh, for your sarcasm. Um, we'd another WhatsApp uh, from somebody who says, I don't know what the referendum is about yet, but I believe that a family consists of, uh, well, we'll leave you to your own thoughts because that's something that we'll be uh, voting on in the future. Um, I don't have a problem with any other couples, but I don't think uh, that an arrangement should be inserted into the Constitution for non-traditional families, a man and woman and children, and I'm not a phobic. Uh, Well, that's uh, the conversation that we're going to be having, I think, uh, in the coming months uh, when, well, possibly, we don't know yet. Uh, We do know that there'll be a referendum on removing the article which uh, supports uh, women in the home uh, but after that, uh, I'm not sure what the second one will be. The Taoiseach did say yesterday that there will be a second one, and I think uh, it's probably uh, a fair bet to assume that it'll have something to do with the definition of the family. Uh, thanks, by the way, to Michael Gillespie, who's uh, the General Secretary of the TUI. Our phone number is 0419832000. Michael Reed on LMFM. Sinn Féin is not anti-Israel. Uh, that's uh, according to its Foreign Affairs and Defence spokesperson, Matt Carthy, who joins us uh, this morning. Good morning to you, Matt Carthy. Thanks uh, indeed for joining us. Uh, you were asked by the Daily Mail if you were anti-Israel and that's because uh, of how the issue was raised uh, with uh, the Tanishta, Michal Martin and the Minister for Foreign Affairs by a member of the Israel Council on Foreign Relations. He, I think he was asked if you uh, were uh, the most uh, uh, despising uh, party of uh, Israel, if you, if the, the political party that hated Israel most and he wanted to know uh, what uh, Sinn Féin government would look like for Israel. Uh, is it not a good thing, in your view, to be anti-Israeli policies? Oh, we certainly are anti-Israeli policies and we are um, absolutely opposed to the policies that are being particularly pursued by the current Israeli government and um, but successive Israeli g- governments. But that doesn't obviously mean that we're, we have any antipathy towards the people of Israel. Uh, the, on the contrary, we want to see uh, lasting peace settlement in the Middle East. We want to see um, the two-state solution enacted. We want to see the upholding of international law. And all of those things are frustrated by the current actions of the Israeli regime, which is um, intensifying its aggression and its apartheid regime against the Palestinian people at the moment. All right. Uh, Maybe you'd answer that other question of what a Sinn Féin government would look like from an Israeli perspective. Uh, Would uh, Sinn Féin recognise the state of Palestine? Yes, we would, and we believe that the current Irish government should do so, as is the position of both houses of the Oireachtas, which have um, supported that position overwhelmingly across um, all political positions um, in the Dáil and the Shannad, and as as outlined in the current programme for government. The stated government position at at the moment is that we should wait for others to follow suit and I have to say I find that position untenable and slightly cowardly to be quite frank about it that um, we would wait um, for others to act before we would take a absolutely legitimate and correct position in terms of, in terms of recognising 
the right of the people of Palestine to their own to their own state and to recognise that internationally. And we know that when international um, oppressive regimes um, are operating. Um, we know that it only is international pressure that will force them to stop. So just as it was the case in apartheid South Africa, um, it took the world to take notice. It took the world to take actions. It took the world to actually stand up to the apartheid regime. And the exact same will be the case in respect of of Israel. And we know that Israel has powerful friends. We know that um, the Israeli government is breaching international law every single day. And we know that they are intensifying um, their development of um, illegal settlements and we know that um, many of the laws that particularly the new government have um, have introduced have been cited by organisations such as Amnesty International and others as being oppressive and representing a collective punishment um, um, Mm. approach And, and we know as I say that um, that this will only stop if international pressure is brought to bear and in this instance it will take some countries to take a lead um, and if every country were to take the position of Michal Martin and the government that they would wait for others to act well then of course nobody will act and, and I believe Ireland because of our history mm. because of our uh, our understanding of colonialism and occupation and oppression but also our understanding of peace processes and conflict resolution um, and because of the long-standing history and engagement that the Irish people have had, and particularly in solidarity with the Palestinian people, but with oppressed peoples all over the world, I think Ireland is best placed to take a leadership role okay. in supporting a real credible peace process um, in the Middle East, in the region, and in ensuring that we have a position whereby the Palestinian people um, have their own homeland uh, uh, and that uh, we can finally get to a resolution of this long-standing conflict. And in that, you'd recognise the state of Palestine how would you deal with Israel uh, until such talks took place? Uh, would Sinn Féin regard Israel to be a rogue state or a terrorist state? Because that's the way you make it sound. Well, in many instances, in terms of the laws that they enact and in terms of their actions, Israel is a rogue state. Is that Israel- how you would deal with them? Well, as I say, we we have our own experience of conflict resolution, and that experience tells us that you have to be open to dialogue with everybody. And therefore, of course, um, we would never um, shut down dialogue or engagement with with any with any actor. But we also recognise that there are instances where real actions need to be taken. So to give them credit, the Irish government, and this has been the case for decades, the Irish government takes a very strong position rhetorically in terms of the words that we speak. Um, and, in, and, and it's shameful to say this, but at a European level, Ireland is often um, a, among a very small minority of states that are willing to call out Israeli actions um, in the occupied territories for what they are. But those words must also be followed by actions. And there are a number of things that Ireland can do that doesn't prevent and doesn't um, prevent us from engaging in the dialogue that I described, but also sends a very clear signal as to where we stand on these matters. And for example, Sinn Féin have a piece of legislation um, before the Dáil. It's called the Illegal Israeli Settlements Divestment Bill. And what that would mean is that Irish taxpayers' money um, through the Strategic Investment Fund wouldn't be invested in companies that profit from Israel's illegal settlements in the in the West Bank. That is a very 
sound position and it would send a very clear message that Ireland wants no hand that in our part and certainly does not want to profit mm. from um, the Israeli uh, annexations and occupation of the of the West Bank. <clears throat> that legislation, as I say, has gone before the Dáil. Government have delayed the enacting of the legislation to the next phase for nine, for nine months. Um, if Sinn Féin were in government, we would enact pieces of legislation like that. As I say, okay. it would send a very clear message in terms of where we stand, but also wouldn't prevent Ireland from playing a very positive and constructive role in terms of okay. encouraging well, and developing Tell me a little bit more about that role, because uh, I've only got a, a minute or two left. Uh, sorry for talking over to you, but I want to ask you about Hamas. Uh, would Sinn Féin ra- recognise Hamas as uh, the government of uh, the Palestine state uh, and deal with Hamas? As as I say, we are opposed to aggression and we are opposed to the actions of Hamas. And one of the things that we would want to see um, are elections throughout the Palestinian um, territories because I think it's crucially important um, that the Palestinian people are rep- represented um, through a democratic um, for- forum. Um, and, but we recognise that um, many of the actions of Hamas have also breached international law and have been unhelpful in terms of securing uh, a-, a peace um, a, a, a peace so you wouldn't talk to them, but you talk to the Israelis. That's not what I said. Okay, I said, so what would you do? What, what, our view is that we would talk to everybody. We know from the Irish peace process that exclusion doesn't work. Would that, we know from the would Irish that mean pro- recognising Hamas as uh, the government uh, in Palestine? It would. We would recognise all entities that have uh, um, that have a base within the within both Israel and Palestine because it, and that's not to say that we recognize the legitimacy or otherwise or make a judgment call but we recognize that in order for peace processes to be successful well then you have to engage and you have to engage and you cannot exclude any anybody but crucially in order for uh, a peace process to develop the annexation the occupation the blockades of Gaza the ongoing actions of the Israeli regime must be brought to a halt. They are the government that have preferential trade agreements and mm. preferential treatments with entities like the European Union. They are yeah, the people that benefit also from... A big, big, big army and uh, nuclear weapons and all sorts of uh, things uh, which are impossible for the other side to contend with. I'm out of for time. sure. And yeah. therefore, um, therefore, if we want to take a meaningful step towards delivering the two-state solution and a real lasting peace in this region where the Palestinian people have their homeland, in the first instance it is the pri- it is the onus is on Israel and in regard to our own position the onus is on the international community okay. to call stop because if we don't call stop history tells us that Israel will continue and intensify its aggression. Right. Thank you indeed for joining us Thank on you, the programme this morning. That's uh, Sinn Féin spokesperson on Foreign Affairs and Defence Matt Carthy. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Just some comments for you. Uh, I can't understand. I can understand. I'll be proud, uh, Michael. I can understand the frustration of uh, teachers, doctors, etc., leaving Ireland for better conditions. But I honestly think uh, that there should be a requirement on graduates to work here for at least two years after they graduate. After all, our education system is well subsidised by the government. Look at what happens in the USA, where it costs tens of thousands for college, not 
very many leave as they all have big loans at the end of it that they have to pay back. Uh, somebody else says, can they cancel career breaks? How many of them are on career breaks? I read that there's over 3,000 on a career break at the moment. Somebody else uh, in touch with us uh, about speeding, saying that speed limits are not the problem. It's dangerous drivers. Doesn't matter what the limit is. They'll not abide by those limits. Also, 30 kilometres an hour is far too slow in and around the town. It'll cause problems and road rage. Thank you if you've been in touch with us today. Now, RTE has published its annual report and there's some very interesting reading in it. Let's uh, speak uh, to Shane Castles, a Fianna Fáil senator who's a member of uh, the Oireachtas Committee on Media. And a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. People won't be surprised uh, that uh, they're losing money as if it's going out of fashion. Uh, 21 million so far. They're looking for a bailout of 55 million, I think it is. Uh, But we also learned from the annual report that executive salaries went up by 10% when a a previous cut was restored. Uh, Does this come as news to you or or, or what do you make of it? Yeah, Michael, I mean, we've obviously been discussing this now with with you on the show now for a number of months and, and, and before the summer, uh, when the controversy kicked off, it was all about payments to top presenters, in particular Ryan Turbury. It now seems that this controversy has, has turned and its focus now on RTE top executives themselves who uh, were giving themselves a 10% wage increase at a time when there was a, a deficit of running at a station of some nearly 3 million uh, last year. Mm. That meant the Director General D. Forbes saw an increase of €10,000. Uh, that's the uh, equivalent of uh, the payments uh, that somebody would get over a year if they're unemployed. Yeah, and I saw I saw one particular piece actually already this morning in the papers where um, reflecting on how famously when the chief financial officer was asked during the committee hearings uh, what was the salary and he actually stumbled and actually didn't know and, and the comment this morning was, of course, the poor man didn't know. Sure, he was he was being reinstated uh, money that he was he was previously cut. Mm. He, he didn't happen to mention that, that to you. This is uh, Richard Collins uh, when he was before your committee. No, he, he he didn't. And again, this comes to the whole nub of the problem in terms of uh, telling the truth and then being economical with the truth and not actually offering uh, the full facts. Um, obviously, next Wednesday. We're going to have the RT board uh, in before us again at the Oireachtas Media Committee and indeed Kevin Backhurst. And I suppose the publication of this report uh, yesterday is timely now ahead of that meeting. Uh, and in particular, it comes at a time for the publication of the increasing, um, you know, the confidence just ebbing away uh, from RT by members of the public. Mm. Uh, when we see the TV licence sales for the last week of August um, compared to the same time last year, uh, 6,629 homes paid their TV licence in the last week of August this year. The same time last year was 11,220. So that's 4,500 homes who have just said, you know, we're not paying. Uh, and that is a consistent trend over the last months of August and July. And that is obviously adding to the accumulation of losses that's uh, accruing at the station at this moment. Mm. How, how could Dee Forbes, when she was the Director General, go into your committee and say, we need more money? We, we just don't have enough money to run RTE. Uh, we're going to suffer uh, like 
in ways unthinkable. We're going to have to let people go. We're going to have to stop certain programmes. We're going to have to do this, that and the other. And then leave your committee room and go and sign off on a pay increase for herself of €10,000. Yeah, and this is this is feeding into the anger of of obviously the public of of staff themselves, as we've seen this morning in the papers. <clears throat> this was all part of a package of cost um, cutting measures at RT to try and save off losses uh, and save measures of some sixty million over a three year period. And so these um, wage cuts, as they were calling them, of ten percent for the top top executives, but as we see now, they were only temporary. They were not a they were not a permanent thing. Uh, and as of course we've seen with the controversy with top presenters, uh, top presenters were claiming to take cuts, and then of course rebalancing it with payments from outside bodies. Uh, on the other hand, as well, so I think it is just from the top right through there has been uh, obviously a dysfunctionality uh, within RTE, uh, and this has caused a crisis now on a wider scale hmm. beyond the actual campus in Montrose, because the crisis is there is a severe lack of confidence in the public in terms of being billed for a product uh, that they have lost confidence in. And that's a serious issue for RTE in the first and foremost, because hitherto now they have been coming to government repeatedly looking for bailouts. I think there was a strong statement of intent right across Cabinet from both the Taoiseach, from the Minister for Media, from the Taunas, just saying, no, Mm. this is not going to be a scenario of just a normal begging bowl where you come, you say, you've made a mess, here, please bail us out again. I think, in fairness, Kevin Backhurst, uh, the Director General, the new Director General of RTE understands and gets that, but he is a very serious issue now because the Beck and Bowl days are over. And um, on top of that, over the last number of, of, of uh, years, we've had a situation where mother, other main media outlets, such as Virgin Media, are saying that the system in itself was actually unfair and wrong to begin with. Uh, so I think this is leading to a quite a very serious crisis now in yeah. international broadcaster. You don't think the begging bowl days are over, do you? I mean, it's inevitable that the government is going to bail out RTE, isn't it? No, and I, and I made this point actually a couple of weeks ago when we were chatting before, Michael, in terms of um, RTE now, who, who are well able to, to um, do their business on the commercial side and entertain their commercial clients, have a duty of care to come in now and present and say, well, what are they going to be able to generate? They, they have a, a whole commercial arm mm. where they generate commercial income. The onus should be put on them, like any other business who has to meet income and expenditure as to how they're going to meet their income costs. And the deficits within that cannot be just repeatedly met yeah. by the public purse. If it is a case that the commercial arm was taken off RT and it was a fully publicly funded model, that's a different case. Mm. But at this moment in time, they are still a commercial entity as well. And I think that conversation has to be held with the Director General Mm. and with the entirety of the RT board as to what they are doing at a commercial level to try and meet the deficits that they are incurring because of the bad governance and management that they oversaw. Where's the oversight? Uh, I mean, if the Director General can uh, report to the committee that uh, the institution hasn't got tuppence halfpenny to its name, then go off and uh, award themselves with uh, a pay increase of €10,000, who's looking at that? Yeah, and that, and that goes to the heart of, the, of this very issue. And I think that's why there has been a kind of strong kind of kickback by the, 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 the political and the, the cabinet yesterday in saying, look at you know what has been going on uh, for a long period of time now, whereby director generals, and in particular, obviously, D Forbes is coming in and saying things like that, uh, that that day is over and we're not accepting that anymore. I think uh, it, it, there is an acceptance on behalf of the new director general uh, that that overall 
uh, that overhaul is needed. Uh, and that if that overhaul is not put in place, that there's not going to be this uh, bailout mm. of funding provided for RTE. I mean, that has been said to to uh, the new Director General. And so I think we, we have also heard yesterday that there's going to be an overhaul of the licence fee, which has been called for from many people anyway, from different sides uh, next year, and that would be introduced in 2025. I, I want to probe that, obviously, with the Minister when she comes before us in the first week of, of October, uh, because this has been kicked about for a long period of time as to what format that is going to take uh, and how that is going to be funded. And I think the general public and those listening here this morning uh, would be very interested in, in that as well. And ultimately, mm. uh, how that's going to be collected, because we see from the RT report yesterday, whilst the uh, licence fee uh, brought in uh, £221.5 million, uh, some £26 million of that was actually paid to on post uh, to collect that. Uh, so there's going to be obviously a discussion around uh, how how the licensee is billed and how it's collected and who pays for that. And I think the postmasters may uh, be worried about that, but that's probably another day's work. Um, is there any other body that receives state funding in this country that is not subjected to some system of oversight? Yeah, I mean, it is. Uh, and Michael, we could we can keep saying this all morning, that, they, that there has been a complete lack of oversight and, and this has been exposed both by the media uh, and by the Arrakis hearings as well. Um, what has been frustrating is that you have had a scenario whereby not, you have a board in place that, is a, that through the appointment system comes from um, appointment by our committee and by government and by the minister uh, and they themselves are claiming to have been blindsided. That's why I think the hearings next week are going to be interesting because it'll be the first time that that overall uh, board in its entirety is actually going to become before um, the Oireachtas Media Committee. So it would be interesting to hear their life experiences of what they've been going through over the last number of years uh, to find out, you know, did they feel they were being duped? Uh, did they feel they had full access to the figures and what was going on to make an informed judgment and to alert minister or government to what was happening because obviously in the first instance that RTE board uh, it was their job in terms of oversight and then to report but clearly they were neither they were either not in the full uh, possession of the facts or they were being duped uh, and so that's going to be a very interesting conversation with them next week and also the fact that the new DG is going to be present in the room mm. uh, when they're when they're giving their testimony as well. Okay, and we will be a proverbial uh, fly on the wall watching uh, those hearings uh, and I'm sure, as you say, there'll be much interest in them. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme uh, today. Fianna Fáil Senator Shane Castles, who is uh, a member of uh, the Oireachtas Media Committee. Now, let me bring you some more of uh, the comments coming to us uh, this morning. David Navin in touch and he says, Hi, Michael, I agree with that guy's email about slow drivers. I drive for a living and... To be honest with you, uh, I see close calls and near accidents. Uh, uh, the amount of them that I, I've had uh, when I've had to overtake slow drivers, driving way below the speed limit, forcing me to overtake when I'm running behind for my next meeting. Sunday drivers need to realise it's not Sunday every day of the week. 
Thank you indeed, uh, David, uh, for your WhatsApp message. Uh, another message uh, from Liam, uh, who uh, is in touch about driving issues as well. He says, I was travelling from Dundalk yesterday, heading towards the Gateway Hotel, and uh, a van mounted the pedestrian area going towards the retail park, overtook a number of vehicles, leaving grass and soil all over the place, and then re-entered the traffic. <laughs> Janie... My God. Uh, As this was going on, Liam says, uh, a car that appeared to be following or to be followed uh, by this van pulled out onto oncoming traffic, causing chaos. How somebody wasn't injured or killed in this manoeuvre is a miracle. My word, Liam. Thank you indeed. Uh, The things that happen, we don't know about. Uh, The authorities in Northern Ireland don't seem to have the difficulties that we have in housing and caring for the unfortunate Ukrainian refugees, says Tom in Dundalk. Uh, Thanks for your message, Tom. He says, how do they manage this? Maybe you could ask some of our Sinn Féin representatives and All-Ireland Party to give us some useful guidelines on how they manage this in the North and we can learn from that. Uh, Thank you indeed uh, for your text as always, Tom. Um, we'd uh, another message then uh, from somebody who says Michael I can understand oh I beg your pardon I read that Anthony Nardi next Anthony says on the matter of the ongoing RTE issues I have to express disappointment with Mr Backhurst who I thought was going to solve many of these problems as he started strongly in dealing with Mr Tuberty but now uh, has devised a proposed method of payment by more or less direct taxation to finance RTE thus removing the power of the licence paying public to withdraw their support when they felt it was justified. This allows him to ignore the indiscretions of his friend Marty and the free car for five years and also not tackle the exorbitant salaries of the likes of Joe Duffy and Ray Darcy that I thought he would also take in hand. There is no presenter of non-essential frivolous magazine type programmes deserving of such salaries when these salaries are similar to people running countries. Thank you. Uh, Michael, could you ask why we have no bus shelters or a seat on the road through Clorherboy and uh, they can have them in Johnstown? OK, we'll get on to Meet County Council about that and see if uh, that's possible, uh, if uh, a bus shelter is uh, being considered. Uh, I want to read you an email, if I can, next. Uh, this uh, comes to us from Tony in County Louth. He says, good morning, Michael. You didn't get around to reading out my message yesterday. I didn't see it, Tony. We had an awful lot of messages. Uh, but Tony wonders if that's because we only accept complimentary messages these days. He says he'll try again on this format emailing as you seem to give more priority to emails for some reason. Uh, thank you, <laughs> Tony. Uh, I won't comment on uh, the content of uh, Tony's e- email. Uh, I'll just read it for you. He says, I'm sure you must be very pleased with yourself following the councillor's vote of Monday evening which gave the result you wanted but I would add a note of caution a bully is not only the biggest kid in the school playground beating up on the smallest a bully can also be a radio presenter with complete autonomy on the broadcast of a very powerful program which was relentless in its castigation and manipulation of a few democratically elected public representatives to carry out a vote as dictated by that presenter and to what he decided was right. The irony of 
all of this is that before this campaign of yours, 99.9% of the people of Drogheda and your wider listenership, including myself, would have been unaware that this title was conferred on this individual at all. And I can be fairly sure in saying that the same 99% and the individual in question woke up this morning after the vote and simply said, so what? I would be very surprised if uh, this development alters this man's legal advice or position whatsoever. As I say, that's an email that came to us from Tony in County Louth, and thank you indeed for sharing your thoughts with us. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now to a survey of almost 2,016-year-olds and a report from the Institute of Public Health as well as Tobacco Free, Search, Free Research Institute, a joint report uh, that looks at the gambling activities of 16-year-olds in 2019. Dr. Kira Reynolds is a Public Health Development Officer at the Institute of Public Health and she's been telling me about some of the findings. Yeah, of course. So we used um, data from a European survey um, called the European School Survey Project on Alcohol and Other Drugs, otherwise kind of known as ESPAD. Um, and this collects data on 35, or 20, 35 other countries in Europe, um, Ireland being one of them. So we did kind of a secondary analysis on the Irish data. And what we found was that around one in five 16-year-olds reported gambling for money in the last year. Um, and the research also examined kind of the four main forms of gambling. And these were slot machines, playing card or dice, lotteries, and betting on sports or animals. And what we found was that m- the most popular kind of form of betting among 16-year-olds in Ireland was betting on sports or animals. And this was also kind of associated with excessive and problem gambling and was far more prevalent in boys. Okay, and what's the logic uh, in surveying 16-year-olds? Well, I suppose gambling is an age-gated activity. So we really wanted to see, you know, is gambling, are gambling products reaching 16-year-olds? Are they participating in gambling? To what extent are they participating in gambling? And also, you know, what forms of gambling are they engaging in so that we can really kind of focus our policy measures towards preventing gambling-related harm. And does that form of gambling continue with them through their lives? If they're betting on the horses and the dogs at 16, do they continue to do that as older people? Or if they're playing cards or using slot machines, does that continue? Yeah, so our report doesn't cover that, but international evidence would point to that. So people who start gambling, the younger they gamble, there is actually a link to kind of problem gambling or gambling-related harms in later life. So the younger you start, probably the more problems that you encounter throughout your life with gambling. And there's also kind of pathways towards starting with one product and then going towards products that maybe are more addictive, you know, have a higher speed of play, have um, a quicker kind of interval between placing your bet and getting the outcome. And that's really where kind of the addiction starts to show its head mm-hmm. then when they progress to these these products. I, I take it on the other hand, there's plenty of 16-year-old boys who place a, a bet and probably don't place a, another one till they're 18 or never again, as the case may be. And there's other people then who have never placed a, a bet until they're well into their 30s or 40s and end up with an addiction. Exactly. Like some people are just kind of predisposed to addiction 
and there's also vulnerabilities and we found that in our report you know and we see it in all kind of evidence that those from the lower lower socio with lower socioeconomic status you know from more deprived areas um, maybe unemployed. These are the people who kind of are more vulnerable to these harms and those who also carry other addictions to things like alcohol, drugs, tobacco. And so we kind of see vulnerabilities in people as well um, towards gambling. Mm. So um, they're more likely to kind of suffer from gambling addiction or gambling related harms. Are you able to explain why that is? So it's, to be honest, you're better off asking a psychologist that yeah. question. Mm. It's, it's very difficult to kind of tease out exactly where the problem starts to occur. Um, You know, there is products that are related. There are factors in people's lives that are related. Mm. But I don't think you can really predict who is going to, you know, suffer from these harms, who's going to develop kind of problem gambling. So Uh, the uh, best uh, way, I suppose, and what we've seen from the results of our report is to just try and put in measures so that the access, the availability and the exposure to gambling is minimised and it's not seen as a normal activity and it's not as linked as maybe it is right now to sports. Mm. You know, the two are going hand in hand currently mm. and we really do need to denormalise and separate the two, especially for children. Yeah, I wonder if it's anything to do with a pipe dream, if you like, uh, of getting out of uh, deprived areas, uh, of getting out of poverty, a bit like Del Boy and Only Fools and Horses. This time next year, others will be millionaires uh, and believing that maybe... There is that hope where, as if you're from a wealthy area, you don't have to dream. You've already got that wealth. Exactly. It could be any number of factors, um, and you just don't know what people's thought process is. And I suppose it's just really showing that gambling isn't a normal, you know, everyday activity that everyone should be engaging in because you can run into trouble. Um, Obviously, the vast majority can gamble, and they can gamble with no harm, um, and we are very aware of that as well. But it's for those people who are highly vulnerable that protection measures are put in place. And I think the Gambling Regulation Bill, when it's enacted, will put a number of measures in place that will help those people who are more vulnerable and will have more control over kind of stopping younger children accessing these products. Do you think boys are more vulnerable than girls? Are they more disposed to, to gambling? Yeah, that's what all the data is pointing towards. Um, you know, we found that boys was associated with gambling more, with gambling excessively, with problem gambling. And, um, you know, there was kind of higher rates as well of deliberately hurting themselves amongst certain forms of gambling, such as sports and animal betting. So there, we do need to look at boys and we do need to look at the type of gambling as well. And then in terms of why it is boys more so than girls, it's hard to tell, you know, they are potentially more exposed mm. than girls. You know, we've seen growing up in Ireland data point towards team sports athletes being, um, or gambling more, gambling online more. So is it the exposure that they're getting from all the advertising on the billboards and, you know, on jerseys? And is it that kind of level of exposure that boys are just more exposed? They see it more as, uh, normal activity um, than girls would. It's hard to know. We do need more research and we have put that in our options for action within the report. Okay, you hear people saying I've an addictive personality. 
can there be any truth in that? If somebody has a, a gambling problem, uh, is it possible or probable even that they might have a, a drinking problem or a smoking problem or, or just be too enthusiastic about things in general? Well, our data does show a link between, you know, alcohol use, particularly heavy episodic drinking, you know, having ever been intoxicated, even e-cigarette use and tobacco use with certain levels of gambling. And so it does seem to come in a host of different addictions. Um, So being more vulnerable to one may make you more vulnerable to the other. Um, And that is another thing, you know, in our calls for action and from the recommendations that we would have submitted to the Justice Committee is that we do need to look at gambling in the context of other addictions and with the availability of alcohol and trying to, you know, put a bit of distance between the two, Mm. whether that's kind of physically, you know, in terms of alcohol license premises and gambling license premises. Um, So that's that's kind of our take on the addictions um, working together. Okay, and can we learn from other countries because you've compared gambling uh, for 16-year-olds here uh, to other European countries? Yeah, so we looked at the overall SPAD report findings. And what we saw there was, hidden in the supplementary tables, we saw that sports and animal betting really actually rank fourth highest alongside Kosovo of all 33 SPAD countries for, for, for betting on sports and animals. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the context of the results, of the kind of wider results, Yes, Ireland does compare with gambling generally, but there are those certain forms of gambling that are higher in Ireland compared to other countries. Okay, so tell me this, Dr. Reynolds, is that because of something in our DNA or has it to do with legislation, do you believe? Oh, I think it could be a bit of exposure, a bit more exposure to maybe sports and animals and the convergence with gambling here in Ireland. Um, but it also could be the lack of regulation. You know, we had, up until 2019, our Gambling and Betting Acts came from 1931 and 1956. Still to this day, we don't have anything governing online gambling until the Gambling Regulation Bill comes into effect. Um, so the lack of regulation definitely hasn't been kind to us, I would say. Um, but there is more aspects that we do need to look at, and hopefully the gambling bill will cover that in terms of, you know, advertising, marketing, exposure, sponsorship, um, and targeting of people who are, you know, more vulnerable to gambling-related harms as well. Okay, thank you indeed, uh, Dr. Kira Reynolds. Apologies, by the way, for the poor sound quality on the, that recording. Dr. Reynolds is a public health development officer at the Institute of Public Health. Michael Reed on LMFM. Let's talk about reduced speed limits once again. Sinn Féin TD for Meath West. Johnny Gurk joins us. And good morning, Johnny. Thanks uh, for taking the time. What do you make of these proposals? Morning, Michael. Um, anything, Michael, that can save lives has to be welcome. Like, you know, if we go by the evidence, Michael, that tell us um, that 30% of the people killed on the roads are killed because of speed. And if you if you go by this year alone, Michael, that's over 40 of the people who have killed on the roads have been killed because of speed. So anything um, that can help that has to be welcome, you know. Mm-hmm. Will it work? It won't work if it's not enforced. Um, mm. Like you know, like I mean, there, there's 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 good points in it there. Like if you're slowing down in town centres to thirty um, housing estates, 
um, you know, in, in, in villages and like we would be constantly getting in requests in those housing estates um, because of speed, you know, so to bringing it down to 30 in those places is very welcome. Um, but, uh, you know, at the moment we don't have enough Gardaí to man the Garda stations, um, never mind, uh, never mind, um, enforce this you know mm. so if, if if the numbers are not there to enforce it it's hard to see how it would work Right Why do cars need to travel so slowly in housing estates? Well you know um, the, the statistics say Michael if, if you hit somebody at 30 um, kilometres an hour there's a 70% chance of survival and if you hit them at 50 yeah. it's down to something like 20 or 30 you know so But why um, would you hit somebody in a housing estate? Uh, I mean uh, it's sort of a rhetorical question uh, I think uh, uh, road safety awareness has gone out the window with a, a lot of people the amount of people who walk across the road without looking or who believe that they have the right of way this is something that I've seen in the last few years particularly with youngsters who walk out and tell you that they have the right of way that you have to stop. Not thinking for a moment what will happen if you hit them because maybe you were looking at the traffic lights or something else for that matter or didn't get the time to stop. Yeah, well, um, in in housing estates, I think it is important that it is at thirty. You know, um, right. like you have, yeah, you, you have a lot of small kids. You have, um, they are they are liable to run across the road at any stage. You know, um, why forget about the bigger ones? Why are they but, liable to? Yeah. I mean, well. Yeah, well, to, our, our mothers, our much. mothers didn't let us run across the road yeah. like that. I mean, are they not being brought up to uh, learn the dangers of the road? Well, they are, but as, some of them are very young, uh, Michael. And uh, across, across. Ah, well, um, now, if they're if they're that young, if they if they're too young to have road sense, they shouldn't be out unsupervised. Yeah, well, well, my opinion, um, my opinion, um, Michael, is that in in housing estates, that the speed limit should be thirty kilometres an mm, hour. Okay. I think it's twenty going through a busy housing estate. The other thing, okay. um, Michael, mm. I came up um, the old uh, Navan to Dunshockland Road this morning. That's eighty kilometres, yeah. uh, you know. And um, you down down in in rural County Mead, like where I live myself, um, there's lanes that uh, no better local uh, roads, mm. uh, no better than lanes where the speed limit is eighty kilometres an hour. You know, so. Mm. Um, you know, it, it, I think having the, the roads engineer with the discretion uh, there would make um, a big sure. difference there as sure. well. Sure. You know? Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, a lot of that is for school, unless you, you you understand what the uh, speed limit is. It's the maximum speed limit, and an experienced driver should not drive on those roads at that speed under any circumstances because their experience tells them otherwise. Most people are law abiding. Uh, and if the speed limit is 80 kilometres an hour, they won't drive any faster than 80 kilometres an hour. Uh, and those people are telling us that they're being overtaken by lunatics because there's a small amount of lunatics on the road who drive at 100 or 160, as we heard the other day in those zones. Uh, now, if you reduce that 80 uh, kilometre or if you reduce it from 100 to 80 and you're driving at 80 you're still going to have people obeying the law and you're still going to have people overtaking them it's not going to make any difference is it? But sure isn't that where enforcement comes into it? Um, but that's exactly it yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, if you, you enforce talk, if you enforce the existing limits though is that not the point if, if you got those lunatics who are breaking the speed limits to obey the law and to respect other people's lives uh, well then surely uh, you'd have a good start would you not? 
He would, but um, at the same time, I think it is very important that some of those local roads, it's, you're not fit to do 80 kilometres on it, and what would be wrong with reducing it to 50? You know, so I think that would make a big difference. I think enforcement is, 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 is a lot of the problem. You know, so this, uh, this could be part of the solution, but it's not going to be all of the solution. Mm. You know? But if you take that example uh, where it's now 80, if you bring it down to 60, uh, if somebody was overtaking you at 80, the same person's going to overtake you and they'll be doing 100, won't they? Yeah, but uh, you go back. You go back to the same thing, Michael. Like if you're going to, um, if you're going to reduce these um, speed limits, we're supposed to abide by them. And if we don't abide by them, the only other option is enforcement. And if we don't have the numbers to enforce it, it's going to be very hard to see how it's going to work. Mm. As I said to you earlier, we don't have the, we don't have the Gardaí to man the Garda stations. How are we going to get them to enforce this? Mm. So what will that mean? Well, that means the laws and us. We'll have speed limits around the country that you're supposed to be doing 60 and people will be doing 100. Speed limits where you're meant to be doing 30 and people will be doing 60 because even in the 50, now I think it's commonplace for people to do 60. Well, the only, the only thing about it is if you bring in these laws, the majority of people will, ab- will obey them. You know, where you will have, as you say yourself, there are some lunatics, you know, but the majority of the people will, will obey uh, these laws. So if somebody um, just say there's a collision uh, mm. and they're coming at 50 kilometres uh, from, from either side instead yeah. of 80 kilometres either mm. side on narrow roads, like, you know, it, to me, it doesn't make sense that the, that the old road from Navan to Dunchockland is 80 kilometres and local roads down my own way that are no better than laneways are 80 kilometres. Mm. So, and it is very important that the local roads engineer will have discretion in that. Alright, but what about these lunatics? Are they going to be overtaking uh, and will that not make a bad situation worse, making it all the more dangerous and if they're frustrated uh, is there the fear of road rage or the other problem that I I think we're going to envisage which is this thing about tailgating and the stress that that puts on people. I don't know if you've ever had anybody up your rear end uh, uh, and the stress of how dangerous that is and then they start flashing their lights at you and beeping their horn or whatever. I mean, that can put people off. It can really distract people and that can be very dangerous too. It is. Like, I mean, that's dangerous driving. Like If they're driving right up close to you and waiting for you to pull in. But, but it's not the just them. Time. It's the impact that it has on the driver that they're bullying. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But uh, the, what, it, what, what the evidence tells us is that um, there's, there's 30% of people killed on the roads because of speed. You know, so uh, anything that can reduce that has to be welcome. You know, so while you might say um, the lunatics, it, 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 it has to be a help if people do slow down. You know, and, uh, you know, and I believe in, in busy places where it's 30 kilometres, I think um, that's uh, plenty for town centres, for housing estates, for um, around schools and, and things like that. Because we are constantly getting requests in uh, for local authorities to put in ramps and stuff. And and having the funds to do it, you know. Mm, okay. But you, you support the move because um, it's going to cost a lot of money uh, and you don't think it's going to work. I didn't say it won't work. Uh, I, I support uh, what I know of it. Uh, I don't know all the detail, but I know um, definitely in, in town centres and housing estates, reducing it to 30, I think, is welcome. Uh, I know... Um, if you talk about the 80 kilometre speed limit, if you reduce that in some of the local roads down to 50, where they're no better than lanes, I think that's a good move. Um, you know, so we have to look at all the detail. We have to make a decision. But anything that can help to save lives has to be welcome by us all. All right. Well, look, thank you indeed uh, for sharing your thoughts with us on that uh, and for joining us this morning. Johnny Gurk, Sinn Féin TD for Meath West. 
Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Now to some more of uh, the comments coming to us. Uh, thanks uh, to James emailing us uh, about this fire in Moneymore, saying he heard in the bulletin about uh, another fire in the estate. What's going on down there? There seems to be a rise in criminal activity in that area. Is the Drogheda feud back? Where are the Gardaí? Thank you, James. Um, somebody else in touch with us with a similar comment uh, wondering about uh, the fire in Moneymore. Um, it's Mark, uh, who is in Moneymore. He says, another house burnt uh, in Lawrence's Park as well as the same time as Moneymore. Nearly one a week and not a thing being done by the guards. Sick of it. Thank you indeed, James. Uh, thank you indeed, Mark. Uh, I don't know um, what is going on. Uh, it'd be foolish uh, to say otherwise, uh, but obviously there is reason for concern because we know that house fires like this uh, are quite often associated with drug debt, drug gangs and intimidation and uh, that they've been petrol bombed and so on. And we became very used to that uh, during the Drogheda drugs feud. We know that the guards did a, a lot in terms of uh, the drug dealers and the gangs involved. They arrested a lot of them. A lot of them are in prison. Uh, if uh, they haven't arrested them or they're imprisoned, they've killed each other or shot each other dead, uh, as uh, the case may be, and no doubt uh, things have died down. Uh, but what about the recommendations? What about the reports from Vivian Guerin? What about the implementation board? What has happened? What has actually happened other than policing? Because the market is still there for drugs and where there's a market, uh, there will be a supplier. Uh, And if you have people supplying a product that is as valuable as this and a competitor comes in, well, then you get problems. And we know the type of problems that we got before. We were told that the government would respond to all of that in a way that would prevent that from happening. And that's not through policing. Policing is the immediate thing. The long-term thing is a different thing. The Drada Implementation Board was established in order to stop these problems, to get into the minds of children uh, in kindergarten, which is where you have to start, isn't it? If you're going to guide people on a course. Uh, But there's nothing tangible happening, not to my mind. And we did ask the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, why she's now winding down the Drought Implementation Board. Has it not been successful? Is that why she's winding down the Drought Implementation Board? And we asked the Minister, Helen McEntee, if she would debate the success or otherwise of the Implementation Board with opposition politicians on this programme. Uh, That was in July. We're awaiting a response. Well, that's probably not fair. We were told that it will happen, but um, we said we would work around the Minister's schedule Uh, and we haven't uh, had a a date uh, proposed as yet. But hopefully that debate will take place at some time. Thank you indeed to those of you who have been in touch with us about that. Some other comments coming to us. Speed limits are not the problem. It's dangerous drivers, uh, says somebody, but I did read that out before. Uh, We'd Ray in Drada, 
D or A W D A is how he signed it. Thanks, Ray and Drada. He says, "Good morning, Michael. Could I, I just give a quick word and a very special thank you to the bunch of men that are working hard cleaning up the area around the dual carriageway in Drada? Uh, I don't know who they are, what group, if any, they belong to, but they are doing a wonderful job, and it is badly needed. I'm always quick to run down the neglect in the town, but this is one of the good news stories, and I hope you have the time to read it out on your show. Oh, I'm delighted to read it out. I didn't realise that." Ray. Uh, And these are the unsung heroes in our communities. Many, many thanks uh, for highlighting that for us today. Uh, Reducing the speed limit is going to cause more bullies on the road, says Mary Navin. Thank you, Mary, uh, for taking the time to WhatsApp us and share your thoughts with us. Another WhatsApp message from somebody who says, most of the youth driving today are driving two-litre cars. These cars should have mandatory restrictions on them, so it can't be driven at 80 kilometres or more. Cheney. Yeah, they're, they're probably very expensive if they're two-litre cars, apart from being very powerful. I didn't know that. Thanks uh, indeed uh, for your message. Somebody else in touch uh, saying, yes, Michael, the pressure with tailgating is shocking. And yes, just enforce the law that is already there. And the kids in secondary school need to learn their safe cross code again. They just walk out straight in front of you without looking. Not them all, but the majority of them. Oh, I I, I do despair. I, I really do despair um, when I come across young people walking out in front of my car. Uh, and it's not out of frustration or anger or anything like that. It's out of fear of hitting them. I really think, God, do you not have any road sense? Do you not realise that if I hit you, I'm really going to hurt you if I don't kill you? And I wish somebody would teach you that. Uh, speed limit going out of a state facing school gate where over 300 uh, small children enter the school. This is a housing estate in Oldcastle, which our caller says needs the signage changed to lower the speed limits. Not enough children at play signs uh, in the lock crew view estate either. Mary in touch with us too, saying reduce the speed on the road. Speed kills. Where are all these people rushing to? Thanks uh, for that, Mary. Uh, Somebody else says, can't kids be taught in school about road safety and driving? I also think all young drivers uh, up to their 20s should have a black box in their cars. Margaret says, it won't make a blind bit of difference when speed limits are reduced. Some will continue to speed. If the speed limit on motorways was 150 kilometres an hour, it wouldn't be fast enough for some. Why they have to drive so fast, I don't know. There's no speed limit in Germany, Margaret. You can drive as fast as you want and they don't have problems because they're good straight roads. Anyway, a vehicle, she says, is a lethal weapon in the wrong hands. It needs to be driven at a speed to suit the road conditions and so the driver can control it. Vehicles don't do harm. It's the driver who's in charge of the wheel and the accelerator who causes the problem. Vehicles need to be driven with respect, not just for your own safety, but also for the safety of all other road users. We were coming from Kings Court yesterday, Margaret says, on an 80k road, and we were overtaken by four cars, all driven by young males. They were easily doing 100. Three of them overtook in a row. And I don't know if they were racing each other. If some are of a mindset to speed, that's what they're going to do. They'll do it regardless of the limits. 
thank you indeed Margaret for that uh, as always good to hear from you now that uh, is unfortunately the final word on the programme today because our programme has run out on us once again or at least the time for our programme has run out on us once again uh, before we go today as always thanks to Maggie McGuire who researched the show and Paul McKenna was in the control tower I'm Michael God willing we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM good morning bye bye The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.